Hey listeners, welcome to the 70th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. You out there, Brian? I'm here, and I think we have a special guest, too. That's right. So, keen listeners might recall when we talked about the film Tokyo Drifter, my brother Will called in, joined us, and here he is again. How you doing, Will? Hey, everybody. I'm doing well. It's uh, 11 p.m. in Japan getting this recording off the road hopefully my neighbors don't hate me too much after this one but we'll see another unprecedented thing about this episode or special thing about this episode is for brian and me we're recording it my clock says eight fifty-seven a.m which is by far the earliest we've ever recorded an episode you'll hear me sipping coffee throughout here yeah they they call it the land of the rising sun out in japan but right now it's morning for us but i, I guess it, it's about to be uh tomorrow morning over there right yeah, I got an hour and two minutes. We'll probably tick over onto Monday morning by uh, or in the middle of this recording. Will always gets the next day's Wordle before me, so he's always sharing his results as I'm going to bed. The next thing, he doesn't spoil the word at least. But well, yeah, you thought I did that one day, but that was sheer coincidence. The story there, listeners and Brian, is that we came up with ridiculous starting words and. Will suggested Porky, and I went with Porky the next day, and it turned out the word of the day was Perky. So I was one letter off from uh, an exact guess on my first try. Yes. Coveted I will, turn one. Yeah, I'll make this uh, statement publicly and loudly that I did not look it up. I did not know. It was a get- It was just a random word, sure, right? Sure, sure. So. I am not a crook, okay? <laughs> That makes me think maybe you are, and if you say it that way. <laughs> yeah, I like when we make specific references that date our episodes like to the week, because then you can listen back and you can remember what was happening then. Oh yeah. Wait, hold on. What what word number was Porky? <laughs> it was just a couple of days ago, but I feel like you know maybe this could be off. Maybe maybe this could be off base, but I think Wordle is a fad. I think there will be a point really in the not too distant future when people stop talking about it. But I could be wrong. It could be the new uh, social media empire. <laughs> Do you guys remember when 2048 came out and everybody was playing that for a few weeks? I actually still play that. So uh, maybe not a good reference. Yeah. I, I'm just saying that that's what it feels like to me. There'll be some people who continue to do it, but it will uh, probably come in and out or whatever. Man, as a compulsive 2048 addict, they made a version somebody did that goes to like into the millions and it's just this huge grid and I've messed around with it for like hours at a time. I have a sense mathematically that it's probably the kind of thing that would take like more than a human lifespan to finish. <laughs> uh, but I don't know for sure. And also it doesn't save the regular 2048 saves uh, this this huge one doesn't, so I I eventually was able to pull myself away from it. <laughs> yeah, that would that would be the type of thing that would bother me. I'd be like, all right, I'm gonna do it. Then I'd sit one day and spend like eight hours, accidentally refresh the tab, and uh, yeah, that that would be the worst. Go on with my day miserably. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much where I was at. So back to the topic at hand. As much as I wish that we were a fad web game podcast, we are indeed a film podcast so that would actually be a fun topic i want to like go and look at all yeah. the bad games throughout video game history 
Yeah, maybe for April Fools. Yeah. And I'm sure it's a rich topic. There's going to be a lot. Flash animations, maybe. So as we typically do with our guest episodes, we asked the guest to select an, a movie for me and Brian to watch and all three of us to discuss together. So, Will, why don't you tell us the name of the movie that you selected? Well, the name of this movie is In the Mood for Love. It's a 2000 Hong Kong film, a film from Hong Kong. Would you like me to tell you why I selected this movie? Yeah, sure. So I just, this is uh, directed by Wong Kar Wai, who I think it's safe to say is probably the most acclaimed Hong Kong director and probably Chinese director, period. Is Hong Kong technically in China? I always get these mixed up. This is, I feel like this is another thing that will date the podcast. It, it's technically part of China now. I think it used to be a British colony and then it was ceded to, back to China. And and then recently there was obviously the massive protests and a lot of controversy about that. So I don't know how deep into the politics you want to get on this podcast. So up until 1997, it was a British colony. And then they did this uh, transfer of power ceremony because they signed like a treaty in 1898 of a hundred year lease from China. Did not realize you could lease cities. <laughs> well, the British Empire is special or it was in 1898. I guess you can do what you want when you are uh, in control, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Then this this movie stars. I'm going to do my best on all the pronunciations. I already probably butchered Wong Kar Wai. That it stars Tony Leung or Leung as Mr. Chow. I listened to some YouTube pronunciation things, and that was the best I could come up with. And then Maggie Chung. So even though it's spelled the same way as Leung, it apparently is pronounced differently according to the things that I saw. So Maggie Chung as Mrs. Chan. So I know uh, Tony Leung recently had a lot of American exposure because he played the villain in, what is it, Shang-Chi? The, whatever the Asian-influenced Marvel movie that came out earlier, I guess at this point last year since we're in 2022. Yeah, Shang-Chi. Yeah. Oh, really? He, I, I think he's kind of an iconic Hong Kong actor. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's a star, but I don't think he does too much. I'm pretty sure that was that was his first American film, because I, I, I was looking, uh, or at least I, I did a modicum of research as well, and I Googled his name, and all of the top links were like Marvel-related stuff, and I was like, oh, okay, well, there you go. Gotcha. But yeah, Will, why don't you tell us why you picked this movie? Well, it's it's there's like, I would say kind of three or four reasons that come together in the and i'll give them to you i guess chronologically so the first one is when i was in college of course i live in japan now but when i was in college in 2016 i studied abroad in a prefecture called akita prefecture and while i was studying there one of my friends was he was a like animation major or something like that he was studying abroad from colorado and um, he was an animation major and this was his favorite film and because he was a like a media film guy i uh trusted his opinion or so it's always since he mentioned it it's always been on my list of films to see just because i he was a good friend of mine and we made did like a student film together and he knew his way around a camera and such so uh i thought that was uh i thought it would be a good movie for that reason so that's the first reason is it was my friend's favorite movie the second reason is have either of you guys heard of the youtube channel cinefix i don't know anything about it i think i've probably seen something from it but tell, tell us about cinefix so basically, I would say it's kind of like Watch Mojo, but for cinephiles. They have these like, oh, the top 10 best whatever lists, but they represent a wide variety of genres. And the way they do it, it generally feels very well researched and comprehensive. And uh, on one of the lists somewhere, 
a scene from this movie that we will later discuss was on the list and it looked quite striking. That that was another reason that I liked it. And the third reason, I guess, it's not so much for this movie, but the director's previous movie, which is called Chungking Express. And that movie heavily features the song California Dreamin' by the Mamas and the Papas, which is one of my favorite songs of all time. So I watched that movie and I quite liked it. Very interesting movie. And because I liked that movie, I was like, oh, okay, well, this director, his next movie is wildly critically acclaimed. So, you know, let's go watch that one as well. So, yeah, those three reasons kind of came together. That's interesting. This this movie also features kind of an idiosyncratic featured song. I think this one's in Spanish. Yeah, I was going to say I somehow picked another kind of like a little bit confusing, uh, very colorful, stylish movie. I did not really intend for that, but it's stylish in a different way than Tokyo Drifter, I would say. But uh, another Asian film with lots of musical cues and colors. Mm -hmm. Right. I guess an unintentional bit of parallelism to the, the last one that you selected. Lots of style. Yeah. Yes, the continuity. It's a, it's a little more buttoned down. It didn't remind me as much of the 1960s Batman show. There were no huge, solid purple rooms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and not quite as many absurd cuts, although there were a few. But there, there are a lot of, like, billowy red curtains and, and things. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's smoke, smoke clouds and stuff like that. And rainy streetlights. Yeah, and stairs, a lot of stairs. So uh, the very first episode that we ever recorded of The Goods was about the movie Suspiria. And I titled that episode The Reddest Movie, because that's something that Brian described the movie as uh, as we were discussing it. And there were a couple of scenes of In the Mood for Love where the thought crossed my mind that The Reddest Movie would also be an applicable title for this episode. Yeah, there's a few. And speaking of the first episode of The Goods, as of... Maybe two days ago, I have now listened to every episode. Wow. Completionist, Will. I'm, I'm a completionist, yeah. Yeah, that takes dedication. Yeah, the Suspiria one was the last one I listened to, so it's fresh in my mind. There is a unconvincing bat I remember you complained about, as well as some dated effects uh, and, and a girl flailing around in barbed wire. I can't stand horror movies, so I don't know if I will ever check it out. Well, I appreciate you listening to it and... All right, some of those early episodes, we were still figuring out exactly, first of all, technically how to record, and second of all, how we wanted our episodes to feel. It honestly took us a while. My favorite comment was at the end when you did the your signature, is it good section. You were like, uh, we don't know if this will stick around, if we're going to keep doing it this way. Here we are, 70 episodes later. <laughs> <laughs> but we're open to recommendations too, so. Yeah, reach out to us. Uh, will, you mentioned that this movie is critically acclaimed, and I just wanted to back that up. This is according to They Shoot Pictures, which is a list I've referenced a few times. It's kind of an aggregate all-time ranking across all these different lists that get put out. It is the most acclaimed film of the 21st century and also number 42 all-time on their list, which would put it at, I think, the most acclaimed movie we've ever seen. I need to look exactly where. I think it was The Apartment was right around here somewhere, too. Yeah, The Apartment's a little lower. It's 59, so... Our most esteemed film yet, although probably not our most popular film that we've seen. What the most? I guess we talked about Titanic. That's going to be hard to top. I mean, you talked about Titanic. You talked about La La Land. I would say there's you. There's been a few uh, blockbusters on your list. You talked about the classic. Was it Taurus Trap? The the TV movie that Brian liked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say Amazing World of Ghosts might be the the least watched movie that we have had on here. 
honestly, if you talk about movies that people have watched all the way through, the like the five hour avant garde movie you guys watched is probably the least gone all the way through. It might be up there, maybe. Yeah. As I was walking ahead, occasionally I saw glimpses of beauty or something like nice, that. Nice, yeah. I think we've done a good job, especially in the like last maybe half of our episodes of bringing in more obscure stuff and just really covering a, a mix. You know, we, we have some prominent ones, but we've got some weirdo selections as well. You've got like the, what was it, Max Magician, the basically almost a student film, uh, and then some other stuff that uh, is a little bit higher caliber than that, like La La Land or uh, something of that ilk. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm ready to start talking about In the Mood for Love, the 2000 Wong Kar Wai film. I think what we'll do when we normally have a guest, one of the two of me and Brian does the recap and then the guest can kind of fill in their color commentary as we go. Um, Sound good to y'all? Sounds fair to me. Yep. All right. So this movie opens in 1960s Hong Kong, which to Brian's point was still a British colony at this point. So there is a certain, I don't know what the right word is, transcontinentalism about the setting where it's a mix of a bunch of different cultures and influences yeah it's very cosmopolitan it feels and two business couples the chows and the chans fingers crossed that i don't get these mixed up too often because it's kind of similar names yeah yeah similar but also the distinction is important between the two of them certainly yes so they're two business couples and they're moving into the sort of famous hong kong super overcrowded districts in these small apartments in buildings that are right next door to each other. And they are both moving in on the same day. So Tony Leung is Mr. Chow. And then he's, he's married to someone. One thing I want to talk about is the way that we see the spouses or rather the lack of the way that we see the spouses. Mm -hmm. And then Maggie Chung plays Mrs. Chan. So the wife of the, the opposite couple and they're, they're moving in the same day and they have, landlords who are very overbearing and they're very socially involved they play a lot of mahjong and they're like always socializing with everyone talking to you as you walk out the door and it's clear that like the chows and the chans would prefer to be a little more private but like they're kind of brought into these landlords social circles being invited to dinner and stuff all the time i wasn't sure how much of this was like a culture specific thing like landlords are kind of expected to do that or be that way or whether it was Something that would have carried in American cinema as well, where you have the the overbearing landlords trying to be your friend all the time. Yeah, to me, it felt particularly like I, obviously I didn't live in Hong Kong in the 60s, but I, I, it, it, or I imagined it felt relatively authentic in that it was like a kind of you live. Maybe there was such a thing in like New York City would be the same way where you like if you rent in a, a room from some like rent controlled property, the the family who lives there might like try and pull you into stuff. But yeah, maybe you could work it in America with tweaked. They're playing poker instead of Mahjong, stuff like that. Sure. At the same time, though, I mean, having the like little old lady who sits downstairs being a busybody and loudly playing Mahjong. So the guy sits up alone in his room writing martial arts comics just was like the most Asian thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> Yeah, it, it does feel very of Hong Kong in that way. The martial arts serials. Yeah. So Mr. Chow, so this is Tony Leung, 
he's a newspaper editor. And as Brian mentioned, he writes these, they're called serials. And I was going to ask you guys, is this just comics? Is there an illustrated component? Or are they like short stories that get published like a, ch- like a half chapter at a time in, in newspapers or something? What's the format we're talking about? Yeah, I can't necessarily speak to this specifically, but it actually was relatively common in America and England for novels to be published serially where they I think they would do like a chapter a month or a chapter a week. I think I think I feel like James Joyce Finnegan's Wake was published this way infamously. And I think a lot of other like sort of like classic that turn of the century uh, 1800s to 1900s novels were published this way. And these days, I don't know if you see it in newspapers as much, but like web novels are especially popular in China, mm, okay. which are these really long form, like thousand long chapter kind of martial arts stories that uh, get published a chapter at a time. And in, there, there's a, a somewhat equivalent thing in Japan, which are light novels, which I believe are chapters are published monthly. And then they kind of bundle them up, think the same way that like manga chapters are published weekly and then bu- bundled up into a book. It's the same thing, except novels or light novels is what they call them here. So they exist, but it's... I wonder if there's a thing in, like, Reader's Digest in America, or they ever have been. I don't know, yeah. That's interesting, though. Yeah, I know Charles Dickens wrote a lot of serials that way, so... Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and he got paid by the word sometimes, which is why some of his stuff is so descriptive and colorful. Anyways, so he's a newspaper editor, and Mrs. Chan, so this is Maggie Chung, is a secretary for this executive, and... It's at a travel agency, but it seems like her main job is just managing his social calendar, particularly so that his wife doesn't discover that he has a mistress. And so this is, I think, actually really important that she spends a lot of her professional life day to day, like very much immersed in the logistics and optics of infidelity Mm -hmm. uh, in a marriage. So what this movie was making me think a lot of was previous selection, The Apartment. I don't know if you got any of that. Absolutely, yeah. Especially the way that she that it's very cavalier about these business executives just don't even care in the slightest morally that they are in these affairs and how it's up to other people to kind of like help them do this and stuff. I, I definitely was getting vibes of the apartment. And so it, both Mr. Chow and Mrs. Chan are married but have pretty distant relationships where the spouse is either like working weird hours or for Mrs. Chan, it's that her husband disappears for weeks at a time on travel. And it seems like the main way that they have a marriage and interact is while you're traveling, can you buy these things for me? It's almost like a transactional marriage here, but they're pretty distant for sure. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention, uh, I didn't really notice it the first time she makes an odd comment about getting two handbags and this is like the first time you see it. I was like, why? And he's like, oh, you know why? And it's one thing I think the first probably third to half of this film is very subtle in a kind of compelling way where they like the infidelity is like slowly revealed and everything like that. And that was the first one I noticed. Yeah, I want to talk about that subtlety a little bit more, particularly there's a scene coming up where mm-hmm. I it's a major plot point And I just didn't even get it the first time I watched it. I, I only got it the second time I watched it. But right So before we go any further, I just want to talk a little bit about what this movie looks like, particularly Mr. Chow and Mrs. Chan, and how they're kind of shot, because it's very distinctive and evocative. 
So first of all, Tony Leung and Maggie Chung are like two of the most beautiful people I've ever seen in my entire life. They're like absurdly attractive people. I was like, how how are these people being cheated on? I I just didn't track in my mind because there's a the one scene later when Mrs. Chan is like knocking on the door of the Chows and talking to uh, Mrs. Chow, and you just get like a one minute shot that's just like a close up on her face. I was like, this woman is gorgeous. She's absolutely gorgeous. It was uh, and plus the way they have her hair and all of the costuming is insane as well. That's another important thing. I don't know if we ever see either of them in anything other than like out on the town, perfectly made up, pristine beauty. She has this infinite well of these dresses that all kind of have the same shape, but all richly colorful patterns and hues and things on them. And they all have these very distinctive long collars that go up over her neck. Yeah. And her hair is made up pinned up as well said. So it just all points to her expressive face. And then he is always in a a tie and a white crisp shirt and slacks and always looks like he is, you know, ready to hit the office too. Yeah. His hair is slicked back. I think there is one scene where he's in like a a tank top, I think. Mm. But, um, and also there at one point, do you remember the landlady makes a comment about, She's going to, she's wearing that to go get noodles or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah by herself. She's just yeah. going to go out and eat noodles alone. In that dress or she's wearing that. I was like, I was like, that's what I'm feeling. I, I wear sweatpants to the ramen shop. I don't, I don't uh, put on my Sunday's best. <laughs> the, the guy, the, the kind of handsome down on his luck guy in the shirt and tie reminded me of the guy who gets swapped in as Asian Jim on the office. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he does kind of look like him. Yeah. But it's not just the costumes that are stunning in this movie. No, definitely not. There's so much visual sort of depth or um, richness here. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's like historically beautiful cinematography. The colors are so rich. And I want to someday take this movie like shot by shot and dissect how the colors are used and like what is it's aligning to emotionally because it just seems like a movie that has so much precision in the way that everything looks and everything is designed and the colors match the mood always and all sorts of stuff like that and and one thing that i think is really important is that they are at least in the first half of the movie shot almost entirely inside but like very not just indoors like you think of a normal indoor shot but boxed in you see the door frames you see the tight quarters and the walls around them that they're feeling very much trapped in their lives in my notes i say it feels intimately cramped it's like you get a lot of shots through doors and windows to get the vibe of them being sort of in a container almost but not it's not always negatively but it's definitely very very close quarters i also think this movie is probably the closest i've ever come to taking up smoking because Tony Leung in particular is very often smoking and you know how in old movies it just looks so damn cool like the way they get the smoke to kind of flow out of their mouth and filter around their face and just looks so gorgeous like it makes you want to be a smoker and look that cool yeah (laughs) there's one scene like uh probably just after halfway where he's smoking in his office and like the smoke flutters around the light fixture and I said don't show this to children yeah. <laughs> because everybody's going to take up smoking. 
Smoking is so cool. I want to be like Tony Leung. <laughs> you hear to hear smoking is so cool, kids. This guy especially he keeps doing a thing where he'll suck the smoke in in his mouth and then blow it out his nose. He, d- he does that a lot. He holds it for like 10 seconds in there and you're like this is I, it's just cool. It's just effortless and cool and uh, but I'm sure it actually was a lot of effort to make stuff look that good. There's been this uh gif going around at least on the the movie themed social media things that I I've been that I follow. Um I don't know if either of you've seen this but it's some star from like the 40s or 50s. I think it's one of the musical stars. I forget which one. Um but American ones and it's he's smoking and then he he's kind of holding his girl and he goes in for a kiss. He pulls the cigarette into his mouth with his tongue, gives her a kiss, then pulls the cigarette out of his mouth with his tongue and blows a ring of smoke. Oh my gosh. I'm sure it tastes disgusting, <laughs> but it just looks so slick. Yeah. It probably tastes like an ashtray. It's probably disgusting, yeah. Yeah, have, have, have you ever kissed a smoker? Uh, no. It, it, I have, and it certainly does taste like an ashtray. Um, <laughs> smoking is, in Japan, it's obviously like you can smoke in bars and stuff like that, and you, some, you just come back reeking of smoke if you go out to a certain bar. Yeah, that's what I would say, is it makes everything stink, everything you own. So if you don't like that smell, uh, well, that's one yeah. vote against it. Yeah, but it, I always think of in Seinfeld when Kramer says, "Here's to feeling good all the time," and he's smoking a cigarette and then he drinks a beer like around the cigarette. <laughs> he, he chugs the beer. <laughs> he chugs the beer with the cigarette still in his mouth. I feel like that's an iconic scene. It also reminds me of there's like a YouTube video of somebody doing a breakdown of a Tom and Jerry scene. Oh, I've seen this too. This is yeah, funny. Where Tom walks up, he's rolling a cigarette. <laughs> it, it's it's very funny. And the guy who's watching it is is cracking up, which is half the fun of it. Yeah, There's a lot of supplemental media here. One more smoking themed reference I'll throw in is uh-huh. the movie "Thank You for Smoking." There is a whole bit where the main character is is a tobacco lobbyist and kind of PR guy, and he goes to a movie studio because he thinks that. Part of the reason smoking numbers are going down is because they're not showing it in movies anymore. And he is basically trying to convince the movie studio to have their people start smoking on screen again so kids will think it's cool again. And they get a quote, it's $30 million for one of them or $100 million for both of them to be smoking on screen, the two stars. And the, the lobbyist says, well, hold on a second. I thought... Usually you get a discount if you get something in pairs. And, and the movie executive's like, no, you need synergy here, baby. And that, <laughs> that that always made me laugh because it's true. You don't really see people smoking too often in modern blockbusters, but mm-hmm. it's definitely more common in older movies. Or if they are smoking, it's smoking weed these days in uh, stoner comedies. <laughs> something like that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in Gravity Falls, there was a moment where... Groucho Marx is there as a wax figure and he's got his hand posed like he's holding a cigar, but there's nothing there. He says, why is there nothing in my hand? <laughs> because I, I think Disney specifically has got a, a pretty strong... No smoking policy? Proviso against smoking. Yeah, no smoking policy. Like uh, to the point that uh, they didn't give Cruella one in her uh, origin story. Oh, really? They never had Emma Stone smoking. I was going to say... This reminds me, we keep going on the smoking, but if you've ever seen pictures of paintings where they like have edited out 
the like people holding cigars and stuff like that in like government buildings it's very funny like people often look like really confused because their hands are like up they look like they're in the middle of like walking out of the room because their hand is up because it's supposed to have a cigar in it but the painting has been edited to remove it so it's uh, an amusing minute of googling if you can uh look for paintings where the cigars have been uh or the cigarettes have been taken out to appease some government standard that's bizarre that's some thought crime shit (laughs) yeah editing the history well, if you ever go to the, we're really on a tangent now. If you ever go to the Vatican Museum, it's it, one of the best art museums in the world. It's like all this weird stuff. You know how the the church used to be very much a for profit organization, and mm-hmm. part of that decadence was they collected like masterpieces of art. Well, they still hold the art, but now it's a public museum. So it's it's a Vatican owned museum in Rome. But if you ever go there, apparently there was a phase of chastity where they. We're like, we can't have penises on anything. So they knocked the penises off the, the sculptures and painted over the penises and paintings. And you want to talk about thought crime stuff. You're like walking around and see it's like someone scribbled over like a, a square inch of this masterpiece painting with a green marker. Uh, I wonder where all the stone penises ended up, by the way, that they knocked off the statues. That's that's going to be the plot of the next Indiana Jones. <laughs> Yeah, Indiana Jones and Da Vinci's penis. So yeah, these two people, very lonely, but married. Lots of really cool shots of them walking upstairs, down hallways. And there's maybe like 10 times this movie where it does this slow-mo, and then in the background, it either has the main movie's theme or it has this song. I looked it up. It's called Quizas, Q-U-I-Z-A-S. It's a Spanish-language song by Nat King Cole. And so it's like a slow-mo of them. And every time we had one of these slow-mo segments of just them walking in their beauty and this like stunningly assembled frame, I just like forgot to breathe. It was like so visually decadent. The uh, I, I was wondering, I was thinking about this and a lot more the second time I watched it, whether the like the, the different themes have different meanings and maybe we'll come back to that later because those you're right those two are the primary themes we get the latin song and then the string melody and uh yeah and one thing you, you you mentioned them like walking upstairs and stuff like that this is like a recurring thing they bring up over and over is going to get noodles and it happens that they often run into each other when they're both going out to get noodles because coincidentally their spouses are both busy at the same time Yeah, so this is actually a plot point that I did not get until the second time I watched the movie. And I think it's really relevant back to the thing about how Mrs. Chan has to ask her, sorry, has to get two of each gift for the boss because the the boss has to give one each to the mistress and the wife is so she, Mrs. Chan, at some point is going to return something to Mr. Chow. And this is before they're particularly close. And knocks on the Chow's door and overhears her husband inside. So basically confirming to her that not only are both of their respective spouses in the midst of affairs, but they're in fact in affairs with each other. I thought this was implied, but not directly stated the first time I watched. I didn't catch that it was specifically that. But the really great scene here is, uh, I forget who brings who out to lunch or dinner, but Mrs. Chan and Mr. Chow are having a meal together And like both of them at this point know that their spouses are having an affair together, but they haven't talked about it yet. And so the way that they share that they know is they ask about the clothing items. It's like you, that's a nice tie. 
my husband has a similar tie. Have you ever noticed that? And they, they do this a couple of times until at one point, I think Mrs. Chan says, I thought I was the only one who knew. So basically confirming that they both registered it. I was, did not follow this scene the first time I watched it. And I, I was glad I watched it again because it's subtle and very clever the way that it reveals yeah, it. Yeah, that, that scene is my favorite scene in the movie. And there's, there's one more conversation that you uh, skipped over that I want to mention is when... So it's, I believe this is before, oh, is it before or is it after? So at one point, her boss, Mrs. Chan's boss is, uh, she has a conversation with him about a necktie. And the exact conversation she says is she compliments him. She says, that tie looks good on you. And then he says, oh, you noticed? It's almost like the same one. And she makes the comment, you notice things when you pay attention. Oh. And then and then, and then he and then he changes back to uh, the uh, other tie after she makes that comment. And another thing, in, in this scene you're talking about, at one point, so the scene, it's Mr. Chow invites out Mrs. Chan, and the, his pretense is, he's like, oh, where'd you get that handbag? I want to get one for my wife. And she s- says, uh, oh, you, maybe you shouldn't get the same one. Right. And because, and you know. A woman would mind that sort of thing. And then she's like, yeah, especially since we're neighbors. And I just love the subtlety of it because if you like you take a moment to think about it, and you're like, OK, she she's saying this because she has already noticed exactly what she's talking about. It's just I love it. It's good. It's clever writing. Yeah. And I was glad I watched it again and kind of knowing where things would head uh, follow some of the subtlety of that a little bit. So that's good. At this point, I'll say that. When the movie first started out and we learned that it's the Chows and the Chans, I was afraid I was going to have to distinguish between the two families a lot. But luckily, we mostly only see Mr. Chow and Mrs. Chan. They're our central characters. And the spouses are absent most of the time. And if they're shown, it's like Wilson from Home Improvement. Like, Yeah, you never see their faces. Yeah, they're faceless. They're like off screen. After after the scene, the movie does for the first time a kind of gag or a uh, not. I don't know if it's a gag, but a plot element it uses repeatedly, which is like this fake out because you were talking about how, oh, I thought I was the only one that knew. And then immediately after that scene, they launch into a sort of almost like a thought experiment of uh, how how do you think this started between the uh, their their spouses so, yeah, it's really interesting the way that their new friendship, they bond over the fact that their spouses are cheating with each other, but they vow to keep it platonic. So it's kind of like this this relationship is their coping mechanism with their busted relationship. I mean, very obviously there's chemistry between them, too, but they're like holding back from that. And so there's a lot of that, like Will is talking about play acting of the affair that their spouses are having, which is also in turn like them sort of being able to live out this romantic fantasy themselves. It's just really like layered. Yeah, they do it three or four times in the in the film. What did you guys think of this? Did it was it effective each time? Because I thought it was. Um, and one of the times confused me the first time I watched it, but uh, I still thought it was extremely effective. I thought it was compelling because like the first time we see them doing this, it's got the man framed as though he actually were the husband, like doing the doing the unseen character shtick. And she's she's telling him off, like, I know you're having an affair. Admit it. And then he does and she slaps him and we see it's the guy we've been following all along, Mr. Chow. 
Yeah, that, the first time they do it is right after the restaurant scene when they're, like, having this conversation about, like, oh, my husband would never say that about, like, inviting her out to stay the night or whatever. When it happens the first time, you're like, oh, are they going to start, are both spouses going to be cheating on each other? And then you realize that it's like, a, oh, they're just play acting. And, but they, yeah, they do the same kind of thing you said when they have a practice confrontation. That's another one of my favorite scenes in the movie. But yeah, so it, I thought it was effective every time. It often had some of the more, like evocative scenes in the movie, in my opinion. So this French quasi friendship, whatever you want to call it, relationship that they have becomes kind of their emotional solace with each other. They decide to start writing a serial together. So one of those things that we were talking about earlier, Brian, I'm sure you know what this made me think of a recent episode. Yeah, it was like thread in the Christmas movie. Uh, Happy Christmas. Right. Where there's the sister and the sister-in-law. Or I guess the sister and the wife, so their uh, sisters-in-law, write a romance novel together in that but, one. But here we get even less of the plot of what they're writing. It's just like, at, at one point, like an old drunk guy walks in, and then th then they write him into the story. They're like, when when this character get written? And he's like, just now. I, uh, I mentioned this when I was talking to Dan about the Happy Christmas episode, but I uh, am always down for a novel-centric, or writing a novel especially, centered plot line because while you guys have your podcast i have my fantasy novels i write so <laughs> that's my creative pursuit uh, we should pitch that yeah do it at the end let's let's remember yeah but because you you got your kindle it's up on amazon's kindle shop you can go and get it but this like this whole thing they have becomes extra twisted because of course they are super sensitive to the optics of infidelity and any sort of impropriety about their friendship and because of that, they work extra hard to kind of hide their friendship and like have no one know that they're actually close. It's this clever bit of irony because they actually are, in this sense, be just chased friends with each other. I mean, it's obviously more than just a friendship. There's like there's a lot of a lot of layers and dynamics going on with it, but it's not actually an affair. And so the fact that they're trying so hard to hide it, it's it's just kind of funny to me. I don't know. I, I was smiling as they were kind of bending over backwards to to not get caught being together, even though they had nothing to hide. Okay, so I was wondering, is it completely chased? Are we led to believe that the only things that are happening are the things that we see? Or is there stuff happening in between? So I want to talk more about that later. But the way the movie presents it, especially for most of the, its runtime, is that because they repeatedly say stuff like, we know it's nothing, or we're not going to be like them, and stuff like that. So at least... On its face, it is presented in a very sort of chaste, where they're not canoodling. Okay, I was confused about that, because I thought when they said we're not going to be like them, it was just like, we're not going to catch feelings or something. I think it's at least a little bit ambiguous. My reading is that they are not, but I would love to hear whether you can make the case that they are because we only see the outskirts of their time together. We don't actually see too much of them in the throes of their conversations and spending time together. It's like when they're arriving or leaving mm -hmm. a whole bunch. And so you're right, Brian, that we don't actually see what they're doing together. I, I mean, my take on it was that they weren't, but I, I definitely don't think that that is like a locked in 100% guarantee because we won't be like them. There are other ways that you can interpret that as you're saying. Yeah, but I, I definitely had the impression, from at least for most of the movie, that it was not a physically intimate relationship. It was certainly, to me, it was more of like an emotional support type deal rather than uh, sleeping with each other. 
Yeah, I think that's defensible. That that would make sense. I just wasn't sure. Although I, I have a theory about the end of the movie that we can uh, talk about once we get there. Sure. Well, is now a good time to talk about the title of the film? It's called In the Mood for Love. I was definitely expecting something more like a Barry White song. Or like a ba 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 And this is like... Uh, I don't know if it's like a translation thing. I I would think a better title would be something more like just like a deep, a deep longing for love or something in the mood to me is like a hip slangy, like a swinger word. Whereas this is more about like shared loneliness in the mood is not the, the feeling that I would associate with this. This is like a, this is like a craving Dan and I were talking about craving recently. Yeah, Brian, I just wanted Brian to share this anecdote and then we can go. So what was, why were we talking about craving, Brian? All right, it's, uh, um, let's just jump off into the weeds here. But I was reading a can of Blue Diamond brand almonds and every cap is stamped with the slogan, Crave Victoriously. It just really pisses me off anytime a huge brand uses a nonsense slogan because I know somebody got paid money to write it and somebody else paid to print it a million times. It's like, what was the decision process here? I could do a better job earning this money. Sounds to me like you need to be more victorious in your cravings. But like a victor doesn't crave things craving indicates a lack of something that you desperately need a, a victor revels all right they have what they have longed for and they've got it now maybe it's intentionally bad because it'll get people to go on podcasts and talk about their product yeah this is their viral marketing right here what's it called it's like i don't know it's like geico they intentionally make their ads kind of dumb because people talk about it more. They're kind of clever, but they're not actually that clever, and it's kind of annoying, and they're all like that. At least, I don't know. I haven't watched TV commercials in about a decade, so I don't actually know that, but that's what I remember from Geico commercials, like the, the caveman ones and the Geico not gecko gags and stuff. Yeah, and yeah. And the pig howling out the window. Some Maybe sometimes advertising isn't necessarily there to get you to like it, but to get you to remember it. Right, with the all press is good press or whatever they say, uh, which... May or may not be true. But anyway, Brian, to go back to the title, this is so it was a manually translated title by the director. So the apparently the Chinese title is an idiom that refers to like a fleeting time of youth that's loosely translated to the age of blossoms or the flowery years. Oh. And the original English title was going to be Secrets until the director heard the song In the Mood for Love. Okay. Which he liked it. He listened to the song late in post-production and uh, retitled it to In the Mood for Love. I actually really like the title. That, yeah, I mean, I, I get the sense that he is the kind of guy who, if he likes a song, he'll throw it in. Oh, yeah. You should you should watch his. The, the other one that I recommended, it was the Chunking Express. That movie, I said it heavily features the song California Dreaming. Like, you hear the first 20 of that seconds of that song probably 15 times in that movie because it just keeps coming up. It's I love the song, and it's good, but I was like, wow. It was not lying when it said that this song was heavily featured. Yeah, and in this movie, it keeps playing this song uh, that they keep talking about, Los Ojos Verdes, the green eyes in Spanish. 
and the and the string melody you hear the first uh, thirty seconds of over and over again as it does those little montages. But I yeah I I think the the mention that you said of the fleeting blooming period mm-hmm. is is very apt to me much more apt because as we'll see soon there's a lot about like the fleeting nature of time yeah and yeah, connection and all that in defense of in the mood for love as a title first of all there's a certain sense of irony to it it's like a very romantic thing but in reality this is in some ways an anti-romance or it's like romantic but there's like a lot of not romantic elements to it and then the other thing is the characters there's a very clear tension in the film where they like they are inclined towards romance but so they are in the, literally in the mood for love but they can't like if if we are to assume that it's a chaste relationship they cannot enact those feelings so i think it's relatively fitting and it i think it has a little bit of this sort of if you read it a certain way almost like a somberness to it like just in the mood for love like you know they're not actually loving they're just in the mood for it i don't know Oh, okay. So now we're kind of about two-thirds of the way through the movie, maybe a little more than that, and after a whole lot of just very not all that much happening, I think if you were to, like, excise out our conversation into things that actually happen, it's not that much of a recap, because this is kind of just a a movie just about little snapshots of feeling, whiffs of emotion. Is it mumblecore? It's not mumblecore. <laughs> I was listening to the, the the La La Land episode and Brian kept on proposing that things for mumblecore. <laughs> are are we sure about that then? <laughs> Can we rule it out? What about is this is this possibly a Christmas film? <laughs> well, it's got red and green in it. I think she wears a scarf at some point. That's pretty Christmassy. But we learn that Mr. Chow gets a job offer to go to Singapore, mm-hmm. uh, which he accepts. And it's at some point, it becomes clear that Mr. Chow has left his wife. I think this is when he does it. I think because we see another thing of them play acting, and she is sad about him leaving. And I think it's another one of those things where it's simultaneously like him pretending to do it to his wife, but he's also kind of doing it for her. Like, I'm, I'm leaving you and going to another country. This is oh, over. Oh, I think you're right. Because he's like, oh, I just need to practice. Right, I need to be prepared. Yeah, I can't see you anymore or whatever. Uh, yeah, that was another another like really evocative scene. Another one of those fake outs uh, where she gets super emotional. But it has like these two layers because on the one hand, he's doing it to his wife, but also doing it to her. Right. And so she's both pretending to be the wife, but also getting... Yeah, and and one reason that I think that we're to believe that their relationship is chaste thus far is the movie really lingers on, like, when their hands touch or, like, when they grace each other and how it seems to, like, charge them a little bit. Yeah, there's the the one scene in the car where she leans on him and uh, stuff like that. Oh, yeah, at one point he, like, goes for the handhold and she, you know, jives aside, moves away. She curves him, as the as the children say. Um, but then, but then later, it's reciprocated. Yeah, because that's the first. That's like the first night when they are uh, uh, when they the infidelity is confronted the first time, and then she does not reciprocate his hand touching. And just as like a day before he's gonna leave, he leaves a message for Mrs. Chan, basically inviting her to come with him. So 
I, I forget what the exact wording is, but there's an extra ticket. If there were an extra ticket, would you come? And my interpretation of the next scene is that I think she goes to his hotel and the hotel is empty because at this point he's staying at a hotel. Yeah. Uh, and in part because he doesn't want to be detected with her, which again is another great irony because like normally if you're getting a hotel room to be with somebody else's partner, it's for very nefarious reasons. But here it's just to avoid detection. Yeah, they've rented a hotel room ostensibly to work together on this martial arts serial. Yeah. So she goes there and and he's not there. So I think the thought is that she was going to go with him, but like just happened to arrive too late. So she she doesn't join him. Because you also get the voiceover line from her where she says the exact same thing. If there's another ticket, will you go with me? And and then, and then it shows her going to the hotel, but he's already gone. So yeah, I, I think you're right in that she was going to go with him, but there... Uh, opportunity was missed so to speak yeah this was frustrating and from here on out for the whole last act of the movie it just keeps happening that they're like oh maybe we could meet up here and they try and they miss each other i think after this it's intentional this one was unintentional but i think like the meet the not meeting in singapore and stuff like that i think that was or it's it's supposed to be read to be intentional okay what, you mean, you think they're intentionally missing each other? I think she is intentionally missing him. Hold on, let, let's pace ourselves here. Yeah, I guess we'll we'll talk about what happened and then and then what we think about those things happening. Uh-huh, but. uh-huh. So they miss each other on the way to Singapore. So Mr. Chow goes to Singapore by himself. And so we cut ahead a year into the future, and he's in Singapore. One thing that I thought was kind of funny is he's with his co-workers, and he's, like, talking about this longing and this thing that he missed and they're like kind of rolling their eyes at him i just imagine this guy who's like always moping about his his busted love life and how two people have gotten away from him his wife and this woman he was close to and at least one of the friends is like just go to a whorehouse dude somebody else mentions at one point maybe it's the same character they're like it it costs two dollars here i love that character but he's also a clear sleazeball his name is ping but yeah, he's because uh, Chow goes on about this, like, in the old days, they used to go up to a mountain and say their secret into a tree and uh, stuff mud into it to leave the, the secret on, on the mountain. And he's like, yeah, that sounds like a pain. I would just go get laid. <laughs> it made me think a little bit, Brian, of the one, the autumn one, it's in where they walk in the woods, the two brothers. What's that called? Over the garden wall? Yeah. Explain, explain the connection here. <laughs> the older brother... Is Wirt the older brother in that one? Yeah. Where he goes into these random poetic, like, heart-longing monologues as if looking into the distance, and the people around him are just kind of, like, not on the same spiritual dimension that he is in at that moment. It's, and All right, I see it now, but fewer brothels in that one. That's a good point, yeah. Yeah. So did you guys like Ping? To me, he seems like he's a good friend, but kind of a scumbag. Because you remember he has that moment where he points out to, this is before the infidelity is confronted, he points out to Chow, he's like, hey, I saw your wife yesterday walking around with some dude. And I was like, this is, this is the, okay, I was like, he kind of gets a pass for all the other scummy garbage he does throughout the right. movie because of that one moment. And also he offers, he offers Chow a job and stuff like that, so. Yeah, he's a little tonally different from the rest of the movie because he's broader and a little sillier, but I think those are some good observations about why he works as a character. Is he's not he's not comic relief. He actually serves an important, steady friendship in Mister Chow's life, even though he kind of seems to 
uh, bump him up for money and, and be kind of a goober around him. And stuff. Oh, yeah. When he did that thing where he asked to borrow money and then immediately was immediate, he was like, I just needed to pay this off. And then right after he's like, all right, let's go out to eat. I was like, come on, man. You wait like 30 <laughs> seconds before you suggest going out to eat after borrowing money. I would say he's an earthier character. He's the one who like exists outside of the romance movie reality. It's like he he's not swept up along. He's he's more uh, pragmatic. He is certainly not in the mood for love. <laughs> no. So here we are. In, we're in Singapore, and uh, he's by himself. And I forget exactly the sequence these happen in. And I feel like the opposite sequence would have made more sense. But we see him go to his apartment, and he complains to the landlord that something is missing. And I took this to probably be the the serials that they had written together. I don't know if we know exactly what it is that is gone missing, but he notices in his ashtray a cigarette with red lipstick on it, and it definitely Mrs. Chan pops into his head. Did do we know exactly what disappeared from his apartment? No, I so the first time I watched it, I guessed it was like her slippers. Because we saw them a few mm. times, like in his room when she gets stuck over on the mahjong day. Oh yeah, yeah. She leaves her slippers behind, and then I think there's another shot later where you see her slippers in his room. So that was that was my guess. But the cereals is is another good call out as well. Maybe that's what it is. So I'll say Wikipedia does describe her picking up the cereals from the room. So I wouldn't have gathered that, but that's what the the summary said. Gotcha. Okay. So he's like, what's going on? Is, is she around? And then he gets a phone call at the office and she is on the other line. And we kind of see it cut back and forth. And it looks like she's on the verge of saying something, but then she kind of abruptly hangs up and disappears. So one thing I think we'll piece together later is that I think she is at this point still with her husband, but is kind of, I don't know, if you kind of piece together what we eventually learn about her at this point. Maybe she's like has her own pang of regret about this thing that got away and is like inching towards doing this dramatic act of reunion, but doesn't ever quite pull the trigger. Brian's definitely right that it seems like they just keep dodging each other. Like there's this movie called Serendipity, a romantic comedy. And the entire shtick of that movie is these, the two leads like 17 times come like one step away from meeting each other and bumping into each other. And that's kind of what the last half hour of this movie feels like. They're always like one step away from each other. It reminded me of uh, how I met your mother, how the mother, like throughout the entire show, she just gets brought up. Oh, she happens to be at the same club or whatever. The one in Singapore felt intentional. I think where she, it seemed to me like she was intentionally dodging him. Yeah, I can see that now because, like, obviously she found his room and knew it was his room. So now I I understand what you're saying. She would have just had to stay there if she was trying to find him. So she must not be. She also leaves him hanging on, like, she calls him on the phone and hears his voice and then hangs up. So, yeah, to me, that one was certainly intentional. The one with the apartment, uh, maybe you guys are right about that one. Not sure. Got to think about it more. Well, to me, it was, at least the one in Singapore, it, I felt it as her on the cusp of reuniting, but then like backing out twice. Yeah, I, I agree. What it felt like a little to me was how people talk about like in a lot of horror movies, everything would be resolved if, if the characters just had cell phones. 
Oh, Seinfeld plots too. Oh yeah. yeah. Obviously, it's the '60s, so that is not uh, not a fix. But it's like just text each other, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Figure out what her deal is by text. So now we cut ahead to I think three years in the future, a few years in the future, and Mrs. Chan goes back to the one apartment, and she's apparently moved out, and she meets her old landlady. And the landlady asks how her husband is. And she says good. So I think at this point they're still together. I'm not 100% sure how we're supposed to read that. But I took it as they were actually still together at that point. Mrs. Chan and her husband. And she basically, the the landlady says, oh, we loved having you. If you came and moved back, we would give you a discount. So I guess she's going to move back into the apartment. Yeah, because the landlady is like moving to America and she doesn't want to sell her like house or whatever. So Mrs. Chan is like, oh, I guess, you know, I'm interested in renting it. And you're right, Dan, about the um, the husband thing that confused me. Yeah. So in in the near future, then now Mr. Chow comes back and he's talking to I got the two landlords mixed up a little bit. I... The coups were his landlord. No, no, no. So what happened is the coups had moved out. So his old landlords had moved out. And so, so that's part of the reason that Mrs. Chan's landlord was moving. She was like, oh, we were so close to with our next door neighbors, but they moved out. So his former landlords had moved out. So he was talking to the per- the people who now lived in that apartment. So they're both new, new landlords. He kind of catching up and he says, oh, and by the way, is anybody living in the apartment next door these days? And this new landlord says, yes, it's this single lady and her son. And a look passes on Tony Leung's face. I don't know exactly how we're supposed to interpret it. But then he kind of leaves without confronting this woman. And then we do see, of course, it is Mrs. Chan. And she has a little boy with him who's a few years old. So once again, they were both single, both near each other. Presumably at this point, you know, the door is open for them to reconnect. But they miss each other. And Mr. Chow is off to see the world once more. A couple of things about this last shot. First of all, that kid is way too old to be the the kid in the in in the shot. He's way older than three, but didn't have a child when they were associating. I assume, unless that kid was just like you know, glossed over the entire thing. But anyway, so I I wasn't sure about that, and I do have some theories. Yeah, I was a little confused about that too. You guys want to hear my theory? So that's the end of the movie, right? Do we have anything else? The way that it ends here is that. Mr. Chow's off to see the world, and we get this kind of extended scene of him walking ar- around the ancient temple. I think it's pronounced Angkor Wat in Cambodia, which is like one of the most famous religious buildings in the world. But it's like ruins, and it's totally empty, and he's just wandering around. And he goes and does the thing he talked about earlier, about whispering a wish into a tree. And that's how the movie ends. Mm-hmm. The last like extended shot with like the you get finally I think the full completion of that string melody is uh very very evocative and I was I was very moved by that when it just pans back to the the hole that he stuffed the mud in to leave his secret there. Yeah, and you get the camera like tracking along a bunch of columns in a row, and you know what it reminded me of, Dan? What? The uh, oft repeated shot in Amazing World of Ghosts. <laughs> oh. <laughs> There's like these six columns that the camera just pans across. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Slightly more artful, I would say, in this movie. Yeah, that's fair. So a couple things that were in my mind at this point uh, after this final act where everybody's globe hopping. Mm -hmm. I don't have 
any sense at all of how far apart things are in Asia. Like, how far is it from Hong Kong to Singapore versus to Cambodia versus to some of the other places they talk about? Uh, Wikipedia says they're both from Shanghai originally, which I know is in mainland China, because that's where the other uh, Dis- Disney park is. They have uh, Hong Kong Disney and Shanghai Disney. Yeah, Hong Kong is much more to the south, I think, than Shanghai. I could be wrong about that. I know it's it's um, it's fairly far to the south in China. And then Singapore is obviously the uh, it's like the southernmost tip of Malaysia. And then Cambodia is another one of those southeastern Asian countries. So they're in the same area but obviously it's all relative right they're far apart you, you couldn't take a stroll from hong kong to cambodia right I, yeah i just wasn't clear i mean it, it's even different like if you're thinking in like western world terms being in europe and traveling to a different country is very different from being in america and traveling to a different country it's like if you're in america you can go to canada or you can go to mexico but it could take you a long time to get there whereas in if you're in europe it's like hop on the train in prague and you can go to paris and it's like no time has passed right i think there's a saying that i've heard from a european friend of mine he said in in America, 100 years is old, and in Europe, 100 miles is far. So it's like this uh, kind of different scales of uh, how people think. Oh, that's a great quote. I like that, yeah. Yeah. But I was going to say, the other thing is they explicitly talk about boat tickets. And I don't know if you have ever ridden a boat for an extended period of time, but that, that it would be like days and days, I think, to take a boat from China to Singapore. Uh, but I don't know. Who knows what I know? Well, there is an old, there's an old saying, a slow boat to China. So there you go. maybe there's some truth to it. Yeah. And the landlady, the landlady talks about taking a boat to America from Hong Kong, which is weeks. It has to be unless that was a translation foible, which it might've been, but uh, it might've been plane tickets. Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's still early-ish. It's, you know, the sixties. So it could, could be. Yeah. We've watched some movies about uh, transoceanic boat travel. Oh, yeah. One or two. And riding the bus was a big one as, as far as other methods of transportation go from the one of the night ones. Yeah, it was a night to remember or it happened one night. One of them was the Titanic one. It happened one night, I think, is the one I'm talking about uh, where the couple, yeah, the couple connect on a, a long bus ride. But mm-hmm. anyways, so let, let's hop into some good things and not so good things about In the Mood for Love. So but before that, I, I want to ask you guys, there's a few, there's a bunch of things I want to bring up, but that, those are mostly been the good thing. But before that, what do you think his secret was? The secret that he whispered into the uh, the pillar at the end? I, I just think it was his lost love that he was... Trying to leave behind? Yeah, that he had to leave behind and move on with his life. Yeah, I think it was like screaming into a pillow. Mm-hmm. Like, ah! So my my theory, this is, this is, I don't know how well it plays, but so... Right before we talked about this fake out when you, you were talking about the fake out of him leaving his wife where she gets super emotional. So at that, there is a quote she says it lingers on it and it cuts to a different scene. The last thing she says is, I don't want to go home tonight. OK, and then my theory is the secret is that they had sex. And that's that's the secret he was leaving behind. And then at the end of the movie, you get her with a son in the and ostensibly no husband living with her. So I was, that my theory is that Chow is chan's son's father okay there have been more ridiculous readings that have happened on this podcast than that one i kind of like that yeah so that was my theory of the uh secret he was leaving behind because especially because like the way i read it is the whole movie is them not going to 
sort of consummate their romance. And then, you know, like on the last moment before he leaves, it happens. And then, you know, he leaves that secret in Cambodia. I had that thought, too. Uh, I was trying to do the math and like gauge how old the kid was. The kid is like six years old, which doesn't make any sort of sense. Yeah, it's it, it throws it all out of whack. So <laughs> I didn't really know. Yeah, that's a whole other kettle of fish. I think it's gimmicky when it's like they had one contact, maybe. And then to have the mystery child as the result of that. Mm -hmm. But who knows? We don't get a lot that's explicit here. For a movie called In the Mood for Love, so little is explicit. It's very, very subtle. The whole film is extremely subtle. The, the word that came to mind for me is elliptical in the sense that it's always a little unclear. It's always right on the fringes of clarity, but isn't quite there. Right. It's circling the point, but it doesn't actually get to it. It's near, but not clear. Mm -hmm. Is that a reference to something I was trying to follow with? That's a, that's a, that's a 727-1978 reference. Oh. <laughs> that's the Stephen King book? No, that's, uh, that's 1122-63. Wait, oh, 727-19, that's the, the Garfield one? That's the Garfield one, one. yeah. <laughs> From our April Fool's episode. Yeah, yeah, that's a good episode. The hour-long monologue of the guy talking about the, the pipe comic strip. And then John calls from somewhere near, but not clear. <laughs> near, but not clear. Uh, that's quite funny. So some some good things and not so good things about In the Mood for Love 2000. I just want to reiterate, this is some of the most luscious and beautiful cinematography that I've ever seen. It's not as saturated colors as some movies we've talked about, like Tokyo Drifter. Um, La La Land and Tokyo Drifter, but... Everything about it looks good. Everything always looks right. And the colors are so interesting. And the textures are so interesting. The things that frame the characters, the angles of the shots, the light coming from stairs. I, I just loved looking at this movie. Yeah, it's absolutely stunning. That's a certainly a good thing for me as well. The colorful, the, the costumes, like the, the rain and the way it's used. Like there's a lot of stuff that it's just like, it just looks great. It's extremely aesthetically uh, pleasing. Um, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, a lot of beautiful shots. Good use of color. I, I thought it was pretty unique how often there will be, like, things going on in a room, but what we see will just be, like, a shot of the wall or something, or the corner. Or you get, like, a, like a bit of the room through a doorway, and you yeah. can't see what's, like, you can't see them actually playing Mahjong. You just hear the sounds or whatever. Like, I don't think I've ever seen a movie that does that. It's just, like... The thing that we ostensibly would want to see is somewhere in the background somewhere, and we're just looking at a thing. Mm -hmm. It's like around the corner, yeah. There's so many shots through, like, windows and doorways and upstairs and, like, down long hallways and stuff like that that it's it, it gives it a very unique feel. And it's you're right, it has this sort of, like, fly-on-the-wall feeling where you're just getting a glimpse. And, it, and I think it works with the, as Dan put it, elliptical tone of the movie, where you, it's a lot of piecing stuff together. And I think it also thematically ties with the movie where the connections and the, the lives that they're leading are not like very closely connected. Like they're very isolated people. Although interestingly, we often see Mr. Chow and Mrs. Chan in the same frame together, but there are not too many other times where we see characters in the same frame together. So I think that's like a very intentional choice of visually cueing us that there is a special connection between them. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and um, we've talked about it a lot, but I just want to say another thing I love about this movie is the subtlety of it. And I think it's something that I kind of have grown to appreciate more and more as I've gotten older and kind of read more books and watched more movies, stuff like that. I think the first half of this movie is borderline perfect, at least through the infidelity reveal. Like that scene, the way it slowly builds and you, drops you like little clues about the what's going on and you have to like read between the lines and stuff like that. I just love how subtle it is. And I, it also works because I think my favorite feeling, one of my favorite feelings to feel from media is this sort of lonely or melancholic. Mm-hmm. And uh, this movie nails that to a T. Yeah, on a similar note, one thing I like about this, I've as I've gotten older, I've come to like more and more adult love stories so not first loves but like adults connecting after Mm -hmm. their first love and also particularly if they're connected both because of their conditions in life but cannot be connected because of those same conditions in life and whenever you have a movie that captures that another one is this is maybe a spoiler but um the movie brief encounter has elements of that that's like a 1948 ish it actually plot wise has uh more than one connection to this was that the one with the same director as summertime yes yeah david lean something about that kind of angle on romance just clicks with me so i was melancholy is the right word aching is the word i would also use there's a lot of aching in this movie uh yeah there's like this this it's a lot of longing uh did you guys i had i think the translation i had was it was like a open subtitles so i don't know if it was good or not there were a couple of things that were a little bit awkward in there did you guys notice anything like that Uh, i don't know i maybe a couple yeah the one dan hooked me up with had pretty good subtitles as far as i could tell at least they were synced up with when i was expecting to see a subtitle i got one yeah so there there were a few awkward phrases (laughs) yeah i i will say as a downside for me though is not being able to hear them talk well sorry not being able to hear the and understand the language that they're using because I feel like this is the type of movie where there's a lot of richness in like inflections and deliveries that for me just wash over my ears. I can't. I don't detect anything. It's just a foreign language to me. Yeah, I I agree. I I really liked a lot of the writing, and I imagine I would have liked it more if I could understand the language properly. And uh, it's kind of a shame. Yeah, I feel like that's probably always the case with works of literature and and just any narrative that's told in another language. Mm-hmm. That you don't quite get it unless you are of that culture and especially, obviously, speak the language. Uh, one thing I was surprised that you didn't mention is that at the very end of the movie, after the Anchor Watts scene, there's a big title card, you know, with a bunch of Chinese written on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, like a, it goes like a few panes of these um, ro- rows and columns of the characters. And uh, the translation, at least one translation, it says, He remembers those vanished years as though looking through a dusty window pane. The past is something he could see, but not touch. And everything he sees is blurred and indistinct. Which is like, I was talking about how all of uh, there's so much uh cinematography through windows and doors so there you go right so i thought that was really important and you know it's on the nose but it's the theme of time has gone quickly and you can't get it back so when you said um one of the translations of the original title is like blooming season or or something 
Yeah, like the the fleeting youthfulness feeling, like that's that's that type of season. Yeah, it's like there you it's, go. It's gone and you can't get it back, and it's like you're looking at an old photograph or something. Yeah, there was there. There's one at the beginning as well where it's like it's like she gave him time, but he didn't have the confidence to. Uh, I I don't remember what the exact uh, words are. I could probably look it up very quickly. But uh, yeah, so these those poems, I I probably should have taken a little bit more time, uh, thinking about them because they you're right, they probably are thematically very uh. Uh, I was wondering, do you speak any Chinese? Me? No, I do not. I, I speak Japanese, okay. but no Chinese. So when okay. they were... And in fact, um, in his previous film, because Hong Kong, I think, is very international as a city. And the other film that I watched that I have mentioned now twice or three times, there is some Japanese in there. And I was like, hey, look, I can understand this one moment. I thought it was a little funny that the characters keep saying bye-bye to each other. So like little, little one or two words of English sneak in. Yeah, that's a side note. In um, in Japan, they also say bye-bye. And, like, I've heard stories of English teachers telling their students, like, okay, we're not going to use any Japanese in class. And then at the end, they say bye-bye. And the students are like, hey, hold on, you said no Japanese. And it's like, come on. That's, <laughs> that's English. Anyway, this is the the translation of the opening one is, it is a restless moment. She has kept her head lowered to give him a chance to come closer. But he could not, for lack of courage, she turns and walks away. Which, to me, feels like the opposite, right? Isn't I feel like I always got the impression in the movie that Mr. Chow was a little bit more open and forward than Mrs. Chan was. But uh, who knows? Hard to say, yeah. Yeah, but, I, I, I would agree. So, to continue on good things, I just want to reemphasize that... So, there's a, a couple of the scenes I just adored. The one where they... Dan mentioned it, where they first talk about the infidelity when they come that scene was certainly my favorite in the movie and there's another one where they have like a fake date at the restaurant where they're like acting like the uh other person's spouse another great one the fake confrontation that brian mentioned where like she like slaps him in the face and then gets super emotional another scene i really really liked and then the obviously the last scene where he whispers the uh secret into the anchor wat that also really evocative and and then I, I wanted to ask you guys, do, so my sense was that the string melody was like very like the when they were feeling lonely. So whenever you got the montage of them with the string melody, it was a very lonesome time. And then the but the Spanish song was more like a romantic, like it was when they were together doing stuff. You got more of the romantic melody. What do you guys think about that? That's interesting. I'd need to watch it again with that specific thought in mind. But uh, there might be something to that. Mm -hmm. I, I do think, yeah, when we see them by themselves it does feel like it's usually the string melody so i don't know uh, i'm just recalling a couple examples of it but definitely if i watch it again i will try to be see it both with colors and sounds and music and angles see if there's more that can be pieced together uh in terms of motifs uh, light motifs both visual and audio connecting these things mm-hmm yeah, as for just other really quick good things, obviously the leads were both really good, I thought. I thought... Agreed. In in the film, Mr. Chow was just... He just seemed like the most likable guy. Especially, like, he would have these moments of, like, where he would kind of have this half-smile that is, like, clearly covering a deep feelings of insecurity and depression. I was like, man, I just want to give this guy a hug, buy him a beer or something. And then, obviously, Mrs. Chan is just was just gorgeous, and she was great as well. Yeah, yeah, well cast. Agreed. The the acting's great. Well cast. Yeah. And there is, do you, 
do you remember early on in the movie that one line? It's like one of the only lines we get from Mrs. Chan's husband is when Mr. Chow is talking to her about the rice cooker. Or sorry, sorry, talking to him about the rice cooker. And he's like, oh, how much do I owe you? And Mr. Chan's like, oh, your wife already paid me. I was like, man. Yeah. I was like, I hate this guy. <laughs> Gotta rub it in your face. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. So I watched most of the movie a second time. And when that came up, I was like, oh, come on, dude. You're just being <laughs> crass now. Just rubbing it in. You're really not dancing around it at all. And then, like, when she knocks on the door and then she can hear Mrs. Chow through the wall, you hear Mrs. Chow go, oh, yeah, it was your wife. And it's like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's when it clicked for me what actually was going on. Uh, mm -hmm. That's, I think, when we learn as an audience that, that that's what's happening. Yeah, I think that's probably the most overt reveal. You could mm -hmm. probably have guessed it before already, but... Um... That's certainly the... Uh... Well, that's kind of where I was as the first time I watched it. I was like, I think we're supposed to think this, but it's not 100% clear. Uh -huh. Until I watched it again, and then I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. But what about some not-so-good things about In the Mood for Love? Uh, so I think the... Like I said, I think the first half is exceptional. I think the latter, like, 20, 30 minutes is a little bit harder to follow, and you kind of lose out a little bit because there's some of the cuts are really jumpy, and, like, it's... There's some continuity issues, and then you get this random scene of, like, a news clip in Cambodia, and I'm like, is this is kind of throwing off the pace of the last 15 minutes right. of the movie. That news clip was odd. It felt really disjointed and abrupt to me in the last act. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Especially, like, I mean, I guess the theme is they can't be together. You know, they're star-crossed lovers. Mm -hmm. Reminded me a little bit of the end of La La Land that we recently discussed. It's like, where is the where's the fantasy sequence of... <laughs> just go to Cambodia, Mrs. Chan. Yeah, seriously. Or like, you know, say something on the phone when you visit him in Singapore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know. Uh, it was just a little odd to me and jumpy. And maybe the editing had something to do with that, too. I think I think some of it was some of that stuff at the end is, is very thematic in the sense that as they drift apart, moments that were slow together or like where each detail mattered all of a sudden everything you know as as soon as it ends things don't ha aren't as sharp and time just kind of flows away and so it's like oh. there's something to that there i think but okay it is kind of jarring how you know everything had happened over the course of a month or two i think and then we'd get like a three-year time jump and a one-year time jump i didn't know if it was a month or two i, I it was because i feel like there's times where She's like hot, like like it's like it's clearly it's like hot outside because she's like dabbing sweat on her face. And then there's later in the movie, she's wearing a scarf and stuff like that. My my take was it's like several months, not just one. Because you remember, I think that's probably right, actually. Yeah. Because remember, there's the he's writing the serials and he has them published. I assume that's like a weekly thing. And then he gets picked up for a second serial. And I was like, okay, so this has to be taking like you know, a pretty good chunk of time, like months and months. That that was my impression though, but who knows. I'm trying to think of other not so good things. I think the editing for me was definitely the, uh, or rather just the, the pacing of the last half was definitely the thing that I, I noticed it less on my second viewing, but this is like with Tokyo Drifter where each time I watch it, I think I appreciated it more. Like because I kind of knew what was happening, I had a lot more time to pay attention and connect things together the second time I watched it. But the first time I watched it, I definitely missed a lot of stuff. And I don't know if I can say that's a good thing. Like the handbag comment at the beginning or the that conversation I mentioned about the necktie and like, 
a woman would notice and like you, you, when you're paying attention a lot of these like specific things are really subtle and cool but if you're just watching the film one time you're liable to miss a lot of things yeah i'd say i got a lot more out of it the second time that i watched it in terms of appreciation for some things that hadn't connected with me the first time through not just catching plot details but also just noticing patterns mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. That, that's interesting because I got to the I only watched the movie once, but I got to the end and felt like I had missed a lot and just not really gotten it. But then I read a summary and point by point, I, I was like, OK, no, I, I do remember that. I understood that. I comprehended that. Uh, so I, it wasn't that I like missed anything per se, other than maybe some of the uh, subtleties, as we've commented on and like nods to what's going on, especially at the beginning. Um, but yeah, especially to have it end the way that it did, I, I felt pulled out to an extent. Mm, yeah, it was okay. a little bit kind of jarring. Right. It's, to me, a lot of this is, I think these individual scenes are like master classes and beautiful and everything like that. But a lot of, sometimes the connective tissue felt a little bit not that substantial, right? Because there's no like overarching plot, really. It's mostly just a collection of interesting conversations and scenes with like a loose narrative over top. And once those scenes get more disjointed towards the end, you, I think it's a little, it becomes a little bit harder to uh, yeah. appreciate the moments of brilliance. I think there's some truth to that in the sense that I certainly, as I was watching, I kept feeling like we were missing establishing shots and some reference to where and when we are. Right. You have no idea how much time passes or anything like that, because it literally will go from one scene where he's sick. And then the next scene, he's like thanking her for uh, making the sesame syrup. And, or like it's one scene. It just feels like it like in an instant time will pass. Months will pass, whatever. And it's it can. I think if you're not paying close attention or have seen the film before, it can be difficult to track. Right. Uh, multiple times throughout, I felt like I wasn't being spoon fed enough. Mm-hmm. By way of Western conventions. Yeah, yeah. Which is funny because we had the same thought about Tokyo Drifter when we talked about that on Will's last appearance. Yes, I, I remember I, I, when I watched this movie, I was like, oh man, I'm going to get re- a reputation for bringing these like really kind of hard to parse Asian movies. And I was like, but I, I, I didn't know that about this movie. All right, I promise. <laughs> but I, I mean, to an extent, it could be like there's a spoken language barrier. There could be a a cinematic language barrier, you know, uh, a di- just different conventions of how they're structured. Also, I imagine this movie is fairly unique just because like it, it, it's so acclaimed. Whenever something is massively critically acclaimed, I feel like the, the casual audience is either going to have difficulty with it or miss something or not appreciate it in the fullest extent. Right. And, and, and I mean, that could be true. That could be true of any auteur. Like, the, a filmmaker sticks out because they have a unique style, so. Mm-hmm. Do you, so I, I think about this a lot with music critique. Do either of you guys, you know who The Needle Drop is? He does uh, YouTube music critique. Anyway, he's the most prolific uh, music reviewer on YouTube. But um, in my experience, he, as a music critic, tends to like stuff that is, like, fold pushing and stuff like that really pushes the boundaries. Usually it's very experimental or very novel in some way. Um, that's what he, he'll give his tens to. And I think that makes sense if you're somebody who, as a job, just listen to music all day, because in a sense, basic stuff is not going to appeal to you because you would hear so much of it. So 
I usually end up enjoying stuff that he gives a 7 or an 8 to more than I enjoy stuff that he gives a 9 or a 10 to just because I am not a professional music critic. So I don't spend, you know, 10 hours a day listening to music. So I think the same thing is probably true for films, where if you review films, you look for stuff that to stand out, right? Dan had a good line about this at some point. I don't remember if it was on the podcast or not. I think it was. I, I'm crediting it to you, Dan, because you brought it up. I think you were pulling from another writer. But who was it that said, like, judge an artist by their more typical work? Something like that? Yes, yeah. So we were... That, that's a very good... Man, that's a obscure poll. That I think that was from one of our spectaculars. I can get the exact quote because I remember the article that it comes from. Gonzo out there stuff they make to try to push the envelope is not what you should be thinking about most. So this is from the writer Stephen Hyden, and he wrote this in a retrospective of Bruce Springsteen's career on the now defunct website Grantland. And so he was talking about Nebraska, and, and this is what he wrote. He said, People declare the album Nebraska to be Springsteen's best album based on the strange criterion that an artist's least characteristic work should somehow be considered superior to his most characteristic. Which I, I think, the, and then the subsequent thought is that perhaps the, the better way to evaluate someone is what did they, when they were doing their thing and they did that well, even if it was like more common, then maybe that's what we should judge someone by. So anyways, yeah, I... I think there's something to that. Yeah, I guess in this context, when we're thinking of this film, it's like, I mean, I think we have all been gushing about the visuals and stuff like that, and the subtlety and a lot of the editing and stuff like that can be a little bit harder to approach. So when we're thinking about, oh, is this good because it's, you know, dense and difficult to get to, maybe that is, in fact, not good about it. Right. Well, and we, we all here watch a lot of movies, at least certainly Brian and I do. And so I think someone who watches a lot of movies might have more of an appetite for something that is not necessarily characteristic of what romantic dramas normally are, but is in fact a little unusual for it. And so we would have more appreciation for that. Whereas someone who watches three movies a year, if they put this on, like, I, what is happening? I don't get this. Not just that, but they, they don't, it doesn't feel as interesting or something. So Yeah, the uniqueness of it doesn't track as unique. So uh, perhaps it's harder to appreciate. All right. Well, I'm ready to throw a rating on, on this movie. In the mood for love. Oh, there was a there 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 was one more thing I wanted to mention that I oh, forgot sure, to in, in in the good moments, or I, rather, I don't know if this is a good thing. Did you guys notice there would be these whenever they did the voiceovers? It was like this really intimate, like the the mic is in their mouth sort of ADR, where it's like really. <laughs> I was like, it's like when they did the phone calls and stuff like that when they had these voiceovers, and I couldn't tell if it was like a good thing or not, or it like gave sort of like some breath. Interesting. It's like a. Uh... As I was moving ahead, occasionally I saw brief glimpses of beauty. One of Brian's thoughts was it always seemed like the dude was a quarter inch from the microphone and you could pick up his breathing. Yeah, so you, you had that here when you would, a lot of times it was when the their spouses were like calling them and stuff like that. You had these like, it, it felt like it was really close in on the mic, closer than like the normal audio of the uh, film. And I don't know, it was just something I noticed. And I think it, I think I ended up liking it because I think it gave some weird like significance to the stuff. It made me think that every line was being voiceovered was really profound for some reason, which, you know, in many ways they were, but who knows? I, I liked these people's voices more than Jonas Mikas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Chinese is a very 
because of the tonal nature of it, I think it has a lot of, uh, it's interesting to listen to from English speaker, like a Western sensibility in my mind. Uh, see, that's interesting you say that. This is maybe just me being flat out racist here, but I don't like the sound of Chinese. I don't think it's as pretty. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad we can uh, agree on that for a moment. Most of the time, like if it's spoken loudly, it is, it's a little grating. It can be. You didn't like Ping yelling about going to $2 whorehouses? I loved his voice. No, him especially, the guy, well, I guess they've all got cigarettes, but yeah, that dude highlighted it for me. But like, um, yeah, this is just completely in insensitive territory. I think it is at the very least interesting to listen to. Yeah, yeah, no, th no, it, just that, yeah, tone plays a lot into it. And so like how each word is said is important, mm -hmm. right? Which, yeah, it doesn't really carry in... English isn't quite the same way. Obviously, you can inflect your words differently, and it'll change, you know, change it some, but it's it's not the same thing. It's not built into the grammar, right? The, the tones aren't, except for you get, like, subtle things like asking questions, but, you know, that's, uh, that's about it. Anyway, what were you, you were going to say something, Dan? Uh, I, I just think there are a couple of, of Eastern languages I like the sound of, but in general, I feel like I like the sound of Western languages more. Like, Italian might be my favorite language to listen to. <laughs> you're really you're really driving this home uh, no, I, i'll say i'll say uh vietnamese is the one that just really out there for me but one of my one of my best friends here is vietnamese and because of a quirk with my working situation for a while i used to stay at his house like one night a week because he lived far closer to where i was working and he often calls his parents and they're like drinking alcohol and yelling vietnamese and i'm like this is <laughs> this is about right this is about what i would imagine and it's very hard to understand, obviously. Well, I, obviously, I can't understand it, but I'm like, yep, Vietnamese. Um, but I guess as somebody who lives in an Eastern Asian country, I probably am a little bit more yeah, uh, yeah. used to it, so to speak. I'm a, I'm a close-minded bigot, and I'm aware of it, apparently. So, <laughs> I mean, the fact that you watch this movie is probably uh, says something about it. What was it, the, the one that I, not to make it political, but I feel like Trump made some snide comment about when Parasite won Best Picture... Oh, yeah, he was like, what happened to Gone with the Wind? <laughs> did he say that? He did. Oh it was it was something like that. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then I, I think the, the director had a great tweet to follow up where he was like, uh, yeah, it's a, of course Donald Trump would not like this because he has to read during it. <laughs> That's good. Uh, it was far more clever when he said it, but uh, yeah. Anyway, shall we rate this movie? Yeah, let's let's throw a rating on it, so... I think when we have guests, we usually do non-host podcaster, then the actual guest, then the host podcaster. So Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, that's a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating toward day good, which is an eight out of eight. Brian is In the Mood for Love by Wong Kar Wai from the year 2000. Good. All right, so in like the last week, I've been talking with Dan about the distance between each point on our rating scale and just how there really is like, in some cases, a pretty big jump between each number and the next, especially as you get towards the uh, extremes. So where I'm going to place this one is five out of eight, a good, but it's a it's a high good, verging on the six, maybe, but not quite there. And for me, that's because it's it's really beautiful 
and I do follow the story and there's a pervasive sense of longing that it gets across. And I think that's what it's going for. Um, the, the ending act, as I've said a couple times, drew me out of it. Uh, it was just kind of jumpy. There were like time skips and stuff and globe trotting and they just kept missing each other, which was again, probably the point, but it was frustrating and it happened multiple times. So I was frustrated multiple times. And, and then I was left feeling, uh, unresolved again. That's probably how Wong Kar Wai wants me to feel, but uh, I'm probably not going to be running around grabbing people by the lapels saying, watch in the mood for love. But I did enjoy the experience. That's where I'm sitting at. Well, there you go. Will, is in the mood for love good? So if you asked me this question after the first time I watched it, I probably would have given a pretty similar answer to Brian. I don't know if I would have landed on the same number. I might have taken the jump to a higher number. But I definitely, f I don't know if I felt disappointed, but I felt confused about the ending and I thought there was a lot of stuff I missed and um, I, I obviously love the it, really beautiful movie with really beautiful people and, and I think the writing and the set design obviously was really great as well and some breathtaking scenes some amazing scenes but um, just the sort of continuity of it all and a lot of the problems that Brian highlighted as well it pulled me out of it quite a bit and I thought it was, the ending was jarring and like I said I think the first half of this movie is much stronger than the second half um, however on my second watch, it clicked a lot more, and I think that was, which is kind of to be expected with something, as I've said many times, this subtle, and I think you are able to, because you already know what's happening, it's a lot easier to focus on the stuff that you missed the first time and stuff such like that. But there are still some problems. Overall, I quite like this movie. I believe, I think in general, it probably is deserving of a lot of its reputation and uh, accolades, especially on the visual end and the auditory end. And I am going to land on a mid to high-ish 7 out of 8. So exceptionally good. I really liked it, especially the second time I watched it. Really beautiful. The writing was great. Some absolute masterpiece scenes, I think. Um, but second half is a little weaker, and I can't give it the top rating just because I just felt so jarred the first time I watched it at the end. So yeah, 7 out of 8. Exceptionally good for Will. What about you, Dan? Where did you land? Not with the intent of parodying what both of you have said. Um, there are some things that are very unsatisfying about the film, and it's kind of confusing. And I certainly, as I finished the first time, I was hovering at a high six, low seven. I really, really turned around watching this movie again to make notes for the episode. I don't know what it is. Maybe I had my expectations calibrated differently or something, or... I was just following it a little more closely. I think this movie's a masterpiece. I get why it's up there. I'm I'm right on the, the verge of a high seven, low eight, and I'm just going to go ahead and do it. I'm going to call this a masterpiece movie. I'm going to give it my my tour day good, my eight out of eight. This It looks so unique, so beautiful. The story really, uh, it really worked for me in the sense of this love that just never quite got there. And so there's this, longing yearning in your heart that's so palpable and the ending is to be fair i did not rewatch the last 20 minutes of the movie i didn't get all the way there so maybe i'll come down a little bit again when i watch it the the last bit here but i can really see why this is considered a capital g great movie you know in the in the canon it's just it's really doing some special stuff in terms of evoking moods and 
textures and feelings that are just so hard to get anywhere else and just looking so distinct and rich and man this really did it for me i i hate to be always a point or two ahead of brian there was a period where we were neck and neck i feel like i've been uh, moved back up again but i love this movie this is great and i'm definitely gonna watch it again sometime and i think it's i think it's awesome so i'm giving it the eight i'm doing it so i think i expect if i watch this movie two or three more times i would become more forgiving and of its flaws and more enamored with its good points so i expect if i like i said the first time i watched it i was probably between a five and a six maybe closer to a six and i expect if i watched it two or three more times i would end up uh, on the same page as you but uh for now i think the what i say mid to strong seven yeah but i think rewatching something almost always makes you like it more especially if it's like a good thing i'm not sure i agree with that there are movies that i kind of wished i hadn't watched again sometimes <laughs> The Snow Day episode hasn't come out yet, but I watched that movie three times for uh, the preparation of that. And three might have been too many times to watch the movie Snow Day. But anyways, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I'll turn this one on at some point when I'm feeling snooty with my friends. We're like, oh, you want to watch a movie? I'll be like, yeah, let's watch this most critically acclaimed movie of the 21st century Chinese or Hong Kong film about infidelity. Who's in? <laughs> What I'm hearing is I should watch this at least a second time. So I, th- I think you would it would benefit. Uh, Maybe your score might benefit. But then again, you may have different sensibilities than us. I also wonder how much I am giving the movie the benefit of the doubt because of its acclaim. I, I think I do that more than other people do, and I try to curb myself from doing it. But all that reputation made me looking for things to like. You know, I also came into this one pretty not like determined but i was if i was going to give an eight it was going to be really reluctantly because the last time i was on the show i gave tokyo drifter an eight and i didn't want to be that guy who shows up like once every six months it's a masterpiece they're all masterpiece masterpiece yeah but um i think i probably could have gotten away with it with this one considering the uh acclaim it has but nope we're sticking with the seven yeah you're you're deconstructing more than we do sorry i I, i'm just thinking aloud that's okay (laughs) um so any other thoughts before we move on from In the Mood for Love? Oh, there was one conversation that happened that we did not mention. Do you remember when they have the conversation about him imagining what it would be like if he didn't get married? Uh, yes. Where he's like, he's like, sometimes I wonder what it would be like if I hadn't married. And then she's like, maybe happier. And I that that one really like broke me. Like that that when when that conversation happened, I was like, oh no, it just it just made me feel it, it made me the feels. Yeah. Anyway, that was just another conversation that in the movie that I quite loved. Earlier, you said something about it's one of my favorite feelings to feel. And that that's a potential episode title for me. <laughs> Longing, forlorn, lonely things is one of my favorite feelings to feel from media. That's for sure. So there's a another tangent related to this, but there is a Japanese artist who goes by the name of Yonezu Kenshi, and he is extremely popular. And almost all of his music has this sort of forlorn, I wish it were this way, or like looking back on a good memory that almost, or a memory, like a near connection, like you're almost there, but not quite. That movie, or that, I can can always tell one of his songs, even when he's not the one singing, because all of his music has this like forlorn feeling to it. So um, if you're looking for that, Lemon by Yono Zakenshi is like the classic song for me. Okay, yeah. Was there another, it seemed like you had something else you wanted to share. Yeah, I had a story. It's not related to In the Mood for Love, but it is, however, related to the goods uh, as a, uh, the lore of the goods. Let's hear it. I don't know. Did you, did you tell Brian or 
the the pod about my failed Christmas present for you? Uh, did I? I don't know if I mentioned. I think I did mention it on air. So I don't. He's talked about it. I don't know the specifics. How did you get shot down by Jansen Panettiere? So okay, yes. Reminder to the audience that Jansen Panettiere is my metric for how bad a child actor is. And he is well. Go ahead, Will. Well, he was a star in a in their time loop month. They watched a movie called The Last Day of Summer, and he was the star there. And he was quite punchable, from what I understand. Just little <laughs> a little shithead, so to speak. Anyway, so I'm obviously Dan's younger brother, and in our house we do a sort of like sibling gift exchange where you're supposed to we everybody's assigned because we have a massive family. There's six children in our family, and as children we could not afford to buy presents for everybody. So you give to one, you get a nicer present for one sibling and this year we have continued it into adulthood and this year i was assigned dan and i was thinking about like i was like what i I wanted to get him something related to the pod because i figured you know that's how i have engaged most with uh, dan's voice this year it was my most listened to podcast in uh, 2021 so anyway i was like you know what would be funny i was i was like i could probably see if one of the celebrities they clown on is on cameo yeah so i looked it up and i was like okay well the obvious so i was i looked up a few and one was J.K. Simmons, and I don't think he was there. Um, and I also tried to get, uh, who's the one who Brian likes who was in that vampire movie, Cirque du Freak? Oh, John C. Riley. Yeah, John C. Riley. I, I was trying to find him as well. But eventually it dawned on me that Jansen Panettiere is on uh, Cameo. And so it was, oh, like, perfect. It, was, it was like 40 bucks. And I, I wrote up this little blurb. I was like, uh, yeah, it's like my brother runs a podcast and they watch the Last Day of Summer. Can you... Uh, tell him that uh, you hope that 2022 is a toward a good year or something like that. And the way cameo works is it gives like them a week to respond. And if they don't, it just ends. So I just got ghosted by Jansen. He just didn't respond. He didn't say anything. I think it's because I mentioned the last day of summer. He probably is not fond of that. (laughs) Oh man. Well, you wonder like what else was he even in? Yeah. I wonder if he did listen to the podcast. He Googled the podcast and found (laughs) it and listened. He said, these motherfuckers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> heard, heard the slurs that we were oh besmirching God. his name with. Oh, that's so yeah. funny. Yeah. At least as of a, a few months ago, you could buy his art online, like it, the originals, and they're like $200. And that's just to, just enough that I'm not going to just blow $200 on a, on a gag. But it, part of me wants to have Jansen Panettiere's painting hanging in my room. A Jansen original? Yeah, exactly. A Jansen original. <laughs> Yeah, so that was that was my going to be my Christmas present for you. I think I ended up just giving you that book. Plus, I got your wife and daughters some stuff, but that's good. No, no, I appreciate it. And I'll expect double Christmas presents next year. Yeah, maybe next year I'll I'll, I'll cop a Jansen original. We'll see. <laughs> just trying to cop a Jansen. <laughs> uh, but uh, something unrelated. But I, I know I've told Dan this. I don't know if I've told any of the siblings. But when we were all coming up through the same high school. So, yeah, Dan's the oldest brother, and he's got a lot of younger brothers, and then the the youngest sibling is a sister. Mm-hmm. And we went to a magnet high school, where you would go, you know, to a base school, and then you take the test, and you get plucked out, and you get dropped at the at the magnet school. It was a governor's school, is what they called it. The governor's school of Northern Virginia. Anyway, go ahead. Sure. Um, but... I always felt like Harry Potter and you guys were the Weasleys. <laughs> that was that was my thought. I don't know if you, you ever put that together, but that you kept showing up each year after year. Yeah, and the other thing is, not only... So, 
I'm the fourth oldest, and so I had three older brothers who all went to the same high school. And then also, two years above me, our cousin was also <laughs> at the school, so there were a lot of Stalkups went that high school. I, I did hear the Stalkups are the Weasleys of TJ. That's a line I've heard before, but maybe it was just from you, Brian. I don't know. Could, it could have been. I definitely have had that sort of that mindset thrown around. Um, there are yeah. worse things you could say about a family, for sure. Right. Red hair and beaten up robes. You must be a stalker. You must be a stalker. <laughs> a stupid complexion. Well, but the <laughs> other thing was we were from Loudoun, and that was another part of the stalker lore. We all got on the the hour long bus ride to uh, our high school. Yeah, that's right. And we and we had, we had the massive van for carpooling and marching band as well. <laughs> uh, and nice star kid drop there, Brian. Yeah, yeah. I I've always wondered what. <laughs> How do you have a stupid complexion? I think it's a good line. <laughs> it's almost like craving victoriously. Yeah, we're but, all over the place here. But yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm ready. I was just gonna say we're we're like craving forlorn yesly right now. Yeah. <laughs> in the mood for nuts. Yeah, in the, in the mood for nuts. Um, I need to plug my book, right? Oh yeah. So Will, tell us about your authorship career and your your things that you're selling on Amazon that are books. Obviously, I live in Japan as an English teacher, but my side hustle, well, I teach, you know, two or three classes a day, and I have a decent amount of downtime at work, and I have put that work, or put that time to good use over the last year and a half, or I guess last nine or ten months, uh, into writing, and in August of last year, I self-published a fantasy novel titled uh, The Soul of the Wind, and my author name is W.W. Stalkup, and um, currently we have... I think two Amazon reviews, 4.5 stars, and three Goodreads reviews, 4.66 or 6.7 stars. So you're listening to a 4.67 star author right now, just saying, not to brag, but... Um, I think in the goods terms, we would call you an exceptionally good, bordering on tour day good author. As of now, yes, until I get, you know, the one star reviews from the from all of the goods fans who hate listen. <laughs> Yeah, you're going to get review bombed. Yeah, anyway, the book is 400 pages, fantasy novel. If you like dry fantasy novels about mages and healing and such, I am about 300 pages, 350-ish pages into the sequel, which will hopefully come out sometime in the probably April to May region, but uh, maybe maybe around the mid-year, around June, but we'll see. Pages and pages of mages. Yes, 120,000 words, if uh, you prefer that metric. And I don't. So. And you don't. And how. <laughs> okay, but now, so, what are we going to be watching next week? So, we kind of set a precedent last year. I don't think we need to, like, exactly mirror this, but doing two theme months a year. So last year I did February as a theme month, and Brian did July as a theme month. And both themes, so when I did February last year, I did time loops, so Groundhog Day-style time loops. And Brian did circus-themed movies and i think for both of us the theme that the other selected was a little bit of a challenge for the other so i'm actually going to kick off a theme month here february is going to be yet another theme month for the goods and it'll be a theme that i select and i think the theme that i have picked brian does not know what it is yeah i'm i'm sitting here i'm blindfolded I tossed around some ideas i ended up on something totally different um I think this is going to be more of a challenge for Brian than either of the other themes were for uh, the other person, the other host. So 
the theme month for February is going to be young adult book adaptations. So movies that were originally young adult books that were then made into movies. We have done, I think I didn't do a thorough counting, but I can call off the top of my head two of these that we've done so far. We did Paper Towns and we did Cirque de Freak. Um, I don't know if any of the other movies we've watched have been YA adaptations, but Young Adult Month here on The Goods. And the movie that I'm going to ask Brian to watch first is a, for me, formative movie. In fact, I was considering doing it for my birthday movie this upcoming year, but I'm going to do it now. It was a movie that kind of, well, sorry, I'll talk a little bit more about, about what this movie meant to me. And that movie is it's kind of a funny story a comedy drama from 2010 starring Kier Gilchrist, Zach Galifianakis and Scream 4 star Emma Roberts so uh, Brian I'm looking forward to talking about it's kind of a funny story and I'm looking forward to talking about young adult literature for the, the next month and I hope you're able to Hang in there with me. All right. Yeah, I'm going to be hitting up the dictionary definition of young adult literature to see how I can stretch this, but it's it's going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> there I, is a Wikipedia page category films based on young adult literature. Okay. So you can uh, maybe use that as a starting point. Um, are you guys going to try and read the books in addition to watching the movie? So you're spoiling one of my gimmicks. I, I think I am going to try and read the book before the week and i am absolutely not asking brian to do that no i yeah well i'm sure we'll have ample opportunity to talk about what we are and are not reading as the month goes along but uh i'll think about it <laughs> so it's kind of a funny story the book was written by ned vizzini who is someone i have a lot of thoughts about and uh, i look forward to talking with you about that next week brian okay um i, I have a question dan about it's kind of a funny story on like can you give me just a rough estimate of how many times $2 whorehouses are mentioned in the book? <laughs> uh, I, I don't think $2 whorehouses are, are mentioned. <laughs> I guess, though, he says in, in In the Mood for Love that he got it on credit. So uh, Yeah, so it wasn't really $2, but that's how much money he had when he walked in. Yeah, it was, it was more expensive, but yeah. He thought it would make him more lucky. And then the prostitute was waving around his ID, which I'm like, oh, ping, you lovable rapscallion. Yeah, lovable rapscallion. Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> lovable for a price. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he, he said he was a regular for. Oh no! All right. Um. Anyway, Will, I want to say thank you very much for joining us on the Goods, a film podcast, and f not just joining us, but phoning in from the other side of the world. Yes, it is nearly one a.m. Nearly one a.m. right now, so I have to wake up in seven hours to go teach some students how to speak English. Well, good luck on that. And Brian, thank you. And listeners, thank you as always. We will see you next week, the first week of Young Adult Month on The Goods, a film podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye.